what I think is also happening is that our tech habits, again, professionally and personally, have eroded, have completely annihilated some of the biological buffers that we used to naturally have baked into our days that helped us as humans to manage stress. That was Dr. Christy Goodwin. I'm Rich Bolas, and this is the Dad Mindset Show. This episode, we have digital wellbeing expert Dr. Christy Goodwin back on the show to discuss the research-based microhabits that you can develop to claim back your time, attention, and arguably your health. One of the subjects we get into is burnout, something very close to my heart that I've personally struggled with. And I think this work that Dr. Christie is doing is a crucial piece of the puzzle for navigating times that are seemingly indexed towards burning all of us out if we're not careful. So I hope that you find this chat with Dr. Christie Goodwin really helpful. It's been quite a wild time, hasn't it, the last couple of years, Christy? It has. I'm still trying to figure out if this is BC um, before COVID or AC after COVID. Um, so it's hard to, to date stamp things. The last few years have felt like a whirlwind. Yeah. So what's been going on in your world? I'm going to say first and foremost, I survived lockdown with three sons, which I just think in and of itself is a monumental achievement. My husband was conveniently deemed an essential worker during the entire period of our lockdown. Now, I will say I'm in Sydney. Um, I'm in the northern beaches of Sydney. So we had some fairly strict lockdown periods, but nothing compared to other countries and other parts of Australia. So I do acknowledge that. But trying to homeschool the older two, um, the younger child, learnt to walk during our lockdown period and a memory that springs to mind, I was trying to resurrect, um, basically trying to resuscitate my speaking business as a speaker. My business literally collapsed on the 13th of March 2020 when we went into lockdowns and I was trying to deliver virtual presentations from the dining table whilst my husband was at work and then manage the other three children. So one day I thought I'd nailed it. I was delivering a big keynote to one of Australia's big banks I had 700 people online. I had 20 minutes. I thought, I can do this. So I set the older two up on their remote work, remote schooling activities, either side of the dining table where I was positioned. And the toddler who was just learning to walk, I set him up with some blocks and said to the older two, you cannot interrupt me unless it's one of the three Bs. If somebody isn't breathing, if somebody is bleeding or somebody has a broken bone, they're like, got it, mum, no problems. We know how important that is. So I was about 15 minutes into the presentation and I made the mistake of thinking, I have nailed this. I have accomplished the, you know, unimaginable. I've delivered a keynote with three kids on the other side of the laptop. Probably just as I finished that thought, the toddler was trying to then climb on to the table and his older two brothers were trying to silently, as best as boys can be silent, but trying to silently wrestle him off the table. He decided to push them away. And again, I'm just presenting, pretending that none of this was happening on the other side of the laptop, about 40 centimetres from from where I was. The toddler pushed the older two away, removed his nappy and did a poo on the dining table. (laughs) And I kid you not, when I rang my husband and I'm like, this is a shit show and I hope it's okay to swear. Literally and figuratively. (laughs) But for me, that was a rather traumatising moment. So um, I survived that, which is pretty mean feat. Um, Thankfully, the clients had no idea what was happening. I held it together for the closing five minutes. The stench was horrific. The mess was even more horrific. Um, But, yeah, 
that was that that's what's been happening and I guess from there things only got better I've gone back to speaking in person and I have recently published a book so yeah there's been lots of things happening in the background well, well first up Christy hats off to you I mean that's an admirable <laughs> admirable feat to be able to keep your composure when shit's getting real should we say like that's literally oh Literally. And that, I will say, in my husband's defence, that was the catalyst. I just, I rang him in tears, hysterical, saying, I can't do this. This is impossible. You know, I cannot manage three kids and try and deliver keynote presentations to you know, really big clients. Um, and so he consoled me, got it all together, and as a builder, offered to very generously get his team to build me a professional studio. So one of the silver linings of the pandemic is that I've had a beautiful professional studio. So I now speak on stage and online. So that's been another silver lining, finding different ways and new ways to work. So there is a happy ending to that. <laughs> that, is, that, that is great, Christy. And, and is there a massive lock on the inside of the door? Yes. Yes, there is. And um, sometimes in my calendar, there, or not in my calendar, are some unexpected virtual presentations that I just have to go down. This studio we've built in our garage, so far removed from the rest of the chaos in the house. So often, mummy has some extra virtual meetings down in her <laughs> studio, and it's basically like, it, well, it's silent because it's acoustically treated. So I basically have some silent respite sitting in this little studio that I have built. So I don't know whether you need to go to those lengths to get some parental peace. but um... Yeah, I absolutely do because I've got the same setup. <laughs> In fact, when, when you were talking about that, it just gave me memories. Uh, we didn't quite have the, the the low point that you described, but Sarah, my wife, is was an essential worker and she's a qualified teacher. And I'm like, wait, 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 this is ridiculous. How come the the teacher in the household goes out to work at the kinder and, and I have to look after all the kids and try and get them doing three different like sets of things and work full time. Yeah, it was uh, there. There were some there were some hissy fits, um, and generally by me, Thank not you. the kids. Yeah. yeah, totally, totally. I was the one throwing tantrums at my kids. They were living their best life. Yeah, <laughs> oh, weren't they? Just like it was amazing. But I mean, what, they were like. I, I totally want to get to your book as well. But just to to glance off that, what, what would you think was some of the 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 highlights that came from? the pandemic, the, the, the lockdown, or I guess some of the positives that, that came from that? Look, I think it was a forced recalibration of people's values and priorities. I think we're still seeing that now. Um, I think people were forced to really critically look at their lives in a really macro picture and then also down to a really granular level in terms of, you know, when everything's stripped back and you've only got really core functions that you can do, you really start to reevaluate what's really important. So I, I think it was a recalibration of our priorities. I think some of us have slipped back into habit. I think many of us made sort of post-lockdown promises and there were all these bold claims of what we were and weren't going to do anymore. And I think some of us have perhaps slipped into um, old habits. But I think for many of us, it, it's been that juncture in time where we started to evaluate what is it that I want to do? How am I spending my time? Is this serving me? Is it enslaving me? So I think for a lot of us, that was the case. Um I know my kids, and I know this isn't the case for all families, and I I'm, I'm completely respect that that individual difference, but for my kids, they really loved um, lockdown. Their school day, we tried to finish by sort of 1.30, 2 o'clock. Um, when we weren't in really harsh lockdowns, they were off riding their bikes and doing things in the afternoons. So, um, 
yeah, there was a whole lot more flexibility. I think we all cherished and enjoyed. Yeah, I, I think for me as well, I, I really took well, gained a new perspective on just spending way more time with them. Because, you know, when you bookend the day and you just either breakfast time, which was always I tried to make as important as possible, or, or then when you come home, but you're pooped at the end of the day. Whereas I actually yeah. got to hang out with them in the middle of the day. And yeah. when you could actually take a breath and, and soak it up, it's like, this is actually amazing. We've just gone and done something yeah. really cool that we wouldn't normally have done and may never have done because yeah. they would have grown old by the time yeah. that probably spent that time. So that was definitely the silver lining for me. We got to build tree That's houses great. in and lockdown too. How good that? And I think also because you had that quality time with them, and it wasn't always quality. You know, I'm the first to admit that I lost my patience and chisel more than once um, with them when trying to be, you know, Mrs. Goodwin, their school teacher. Um, but you really got an intricate understanding of how they learn, and they are all so different. I mean, whether you've got one, three, five kids, they are all unique, and we hear that all the time. But until you, until you start to see how they learn and how they operate in the world and how different they all are, I don't think you get that intricate, detailed understanding of how they're all unique. So for me, that was another really powerful insight that I don't think I would have had had we not been forced into that remote learning situation. Yeah. Yeah. What what came through with your three boys then from a learning perspective? Like what, what were the, some of the differences that you noticed? Oh, so our middle son, we noticed really um, particularly, and we had a hunch this was the case, but he really needs to see the practical application of what he's learning. So with the most abstract ideas, there has to be a purpose behind why he needs to learn this, and then there has to be some transferability to real life. So if we could give him concrete examples about the maths that he was learning or the, the English tasks that he had to write he was so much more receptive. Um, giving him concrete materials worked in a much better way, whereas our older son really had, and again, our older son is a lot more internally motivated, shall I say, so he's happy to push through and persevere and figure things out. So he picks up abstract concepts quite quickly. His capacity to read and write is really quite exemplary. So he suited the traditional sort of schooling approach where you are given information, you, you know, decipher it and rephrase it or reformat it but we really saw with our middle son he needed a lot more concrete examples and and scaffolding and practical application and we've continued that on that really was a, a key point for us to see how we could serve him our younger son as i said you know his greatest <laughs> accomplishment was cooking on the table so he'd be like, just keeping it in the toilet <laughs> very tactile learner and continues to be um, but yeah, there was, I guess there is a gift and that's the thing I really encourage people, you know, not denying the fact that it was incredibly hard and devastating for many people, yeah. people who lost businesses, people who lost family members. Um, it was, a, you know, and it was a really different experience for lots of people. But I also think for many people, there were opportunities that we got, um, and, and silver linings that we may other have never never experienced. Yeah, well, it definitely feels like coming out of the the other side that, like you say, uh, really evaluating those values and and how we want to show up in the world. It, it's almost like a just a reset. It really does feel like that. It is, but there's one thing I will say that I'm seeing with individuals and with corporate teams, and I'm colloquially calling it the digital hangover. And I think many of us adopted some unhealthy digital habits in the pandemic out of necessity. You know, research tells us the average adult was spending over 13 hours per day on screens at the height of the pandemic. That is a huge amount of time. Wow. And so the digital hangover, I believe, are some of these unhealthy habits that adults 
kids and teens developed during the pandemic that have been really hard to let go of. And I think we're starting to see that. This is why I think in in the corporate world, rates of burnout, stress and exhaustion are at all-time highs. We know in Australia we are the world leaders at the moment in terms of um, self-reported rates of burnout. 62% of employees and 66% of Australian managers are saying that they're burnt out. We're seeing kids and teens with unhealthy digital habits that were part of the the pandemic, but have been really hard habits to break since then. So I think this is a really big problem going forward as well. Yeah, I mean, myself, I I massively hit the wall and just fell in a heap. And I I think it was, you know, sort of trying to duct tape everything together and and, and sort of limp to the finish line. And uh, it just wasn't sustainable. And it was pretty, it was interesting when I sat down with the doctor and went through the list of questions they ask you, they go, yes, 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 yes. Oh, yes. This is what they call burnout. I was like, ah, interesting. Okay. (laughs) I aced the test. (laughs) And well, well done because many people, burnout's often really hard to detect. As the name suggests, it is often a slow burn. So it's almost like an erosive spiral. And when we get caught up in burnout, we're often so exhausted and depleted that we don't have even the cognitive function to recognise that we are, in fact, burnt out. So it's almost like a vicious trapping that we get stuck in. And so I really do applaud you for, for going to seek medical help. This is something we need to be talking about. This is an issue for males and females. This is a really pronounced issue at this point in time. And health professionals are seeing it. Corporate leaders are seeing it. And I think if we all ask ourselves the question, you know, you only need to ask someone these days, how are you? Most people's response is, you know, busy, exhausted, frazzled, frantic. So this is a really big problem, I believe. Yeah. And to the doctor's credit, when I was dealing with it, she was like, no, no, I went through this myself back in 2020. I know exactly what it's like. And it was really great to have that conversation. And, and it was amazing, like the, the professionals that get around you and there is a, there is a path through it. It's, it's pretty straightforward. It's not rocket science. It's right. amazing once you open up and, and people are so supportive in like your work environments and everything, you know, it, it, was, it was actually really quite heartening. I think as a guy, you tend to think, oh, no, you've got to have a like stiff upper lip and, you know, put on a, a brave face and everything. Whereas the minute I sort of dropped that, it was actually quite refreshing because so many other people go, oh, actually, yeah, my partner's suffering with that. Or, yeah, I've actually gone through that. And, and it was that sort of shared... I guess, uh, camaraderie through shared suffering that everyone gets it. Like, yeah, we totally feel that. And so it was yeah. so much easier to work through. Yeah, and I applaud you for being so open about it. I do believe we need more transparent conversations. Even as somebody who researches, studies and talks about this, I wasn't immune to it. I suffered burnout at the beginning of trying to get the years right, 2022, because 2021, I was literally just trying to keep my head above the water, you know, looking after three kids, trying to resurrect a a speaking and a a consultancy business was no mean feat. And it had a profound impact on my physical health, mental well-being and performance. And as you said, it wasn't until I started sharing this openly with other people. And I think we then normalise the conversation. We almost give people, not that you need permission, but almost like a, a an acceptance that it's okay to let your guard down and acknowledge that you're struggling. And I really do applaud people for sharing this. Um, I believe, and in fact, the World Health Organization has acknowledged that they believe that stress will be the next global epidemic. And we know that unresolved stress leads to burnout. So this is such an important topic that we tackle 
um, because it's not going away. And if anything, it's becoming more and more pronounced. Yeah. Well, I mean, a big part of this really harks back to to the book and and why you've sort of, um, you know, dived, what's the, the, I don't know how to, (laughs) dived back in. Dove. (laughs) Yeah, dove straight in. It sounds so nice. Um, But no, so basically, you you know, your new book, Dear Digital, We Need to Talk. Can you tell us, you know, what led to that and and a bit about it, please, Christy? Yeah, so to be perfectly honest, it was my own experience with being digitally burnt out. You know, I felt like I was constantly a slave to my screen. Um, I was tethered to technology. Even though this is something that I speak about and research, I wasn't immune to what I call the digital pool. And then I started to dive into a lot of the research on burnout and stress. And I started to look at our digital habits and behaviours, both professionally and personally. And I think we'd all agree that the two are enmeshed together now more than they've ever been. You know, our professional and personal lives, the the boundaries have kind of been obliterated, I would (laughs) say. Um, But what I found in in some of the research was that, that our tech habits, I believe, are leading to many of us feeling what I call ousted, overwhelmed, under the pump, stressed time poor, exhausted and distracted. And it's happening in really subtle ways. I think many of us have got caught up in almost like this digital tsunami and we haven't really paused to consider the impact that our tech habits, professionally and personally, are having on us. And so in the book I explain, I think it's the collision of two things happening at the same time. The first thing that's happened is that our tech habits have added a whole lot of little micro-stresses to our days. Now, on their own, these micro stresses would be quite benign. They'd be quite harmless. We'd be able to cope with them. Things like constant alerts and notifications, video calls, multitasking, working for long stretches of time, all of these little micro stresses accumulate in our day. Now, as humans, we are biologically designed to cope with stress. However, we are designed to cope with really short bursts of stress and we are designed to resolve the stress cycle. So uh, there is a stressor, we deal with it and we we bring ourselves back to a baseline of stress. But in our always-on digitally demanding world with, you know, the ping of WhatsApp messages, Teams alerts, Slack notifications, email pings, video calls, back-to-back video calls, spending our days multitasking, these little micro-stresses accumulate. So that's the first thing. At the same time, what I think is also happening is that our tech habits, again, professionally and personally, have eroded, have completely annihilated some of the biological buffers that we used to naturally have baked into our days that helped us as humans to manage stress. So we used to get much better quality and quantity of sleep. We used to be much more physically active. We used to get good quality sunlight interspersed throughout the day. Even the way we breathe has become radically different because of screens. We we as humans should sigh every five minutes. And when we're on our screens, we don't sigh anywhere near as much. So what does that tell us? we're often holding our breath. There is a condition called email apnea where they have literally studied what happens when we go into our inboxes and as you guessed it, we hold our breath, we dump a whole lot of cortisol, our heart rate accelerates, our pupils dilate. So we're having this constant stress response. And as I said before, it's often in really subtle ways, but our brains and bodies have not evolved because I often say we have ancient Paleolithic brains trying to operate in a digital world and they have not changed to cope with these digital demands. So it's those two things, a whole lot of extra micro stresses and at the same time we've removed a lot of those buffers that used to help us manage stress. 
this is why we're stressed and burnt out, I believe. Yeah, I think, I mean, when you were explaining the email one, that was one of the symptoms for me. It's like, I actually felt that as you were saying, it's like, I remember that, you know, that, yeah. that like overwhelm, like, I don't even want to open the inbox. Like, this is, it's out of control. And, and so you can feel it physically. But I think also the, you know, you talk about the biological recovery mechanisms that we've almost circumvented. And, and one of them is like when you read a physical book, you actually sigh as you turn a page, don't you? Whereas we don't yes. actually do that when we're reading an electronic book. So it's even those like seemingly benign tech habits that we've developed, like reading a Kindle at night and stuff, that are actually, yeah. you know, not providing that recuperation that we might normally have, have got, or at least not the same level of recuperation. Yeah, and another biological buffer that I forgot to mention before is that um, something as simple as when we're looking at our screen, so looking at our phone, tablet, laptop, desktop, computer, we have a very narrow gaze. So our eyes look in, at a very small surface area. Now, biologically, as humans, we are designed to have a dilated gaze. We're designed to look at things in the distance. So when we have a very narrow gaze, it biologically sends a message to our brain and body we're in a stress state. There is a potential stress or danger. Let's narrow our view. Let's drop off our peripheral vision. This is why when we're really focused and we stand up, we trip over the computer cable right next to us or our handbag on the floor or spill the glass of water because our peripheral vision shuts off and we are literally in that narrow view. So it's all of these, again, really subtle things at play that we're often not even conscious of happening, but are having a huge impact on us both physically and psychologically. Yeah. Well, you, they may even be like a one percenter, but you add up 21 percenters and all of a sudden that's a meaningful part of the whole. Wow. So what, what are some of the, the, the things that you've found that are like ways through this maze? Like how, how do you suggest that we begin to approach this or think about this? Yeah, so in the book, I talk about four pillars of peak performance in a digital age. And I think um, there are things that we can do. I, I think for many of us, we're sort of saying, oh, you know, we, we're just all busy. Or we're part of this digital world. You know, my emails are going to ping throughout the day and I'm going to be bombarded with messages. This is just what it looks like to operate in the 21st century. And I challenge that view. I, I think we need to take back control of our technology. You know, our tech tools that we all use and love should be our servant, not our master. And I think if we really stop to think about it, many of us are slaves to our screens. You know, we salivate like Pavlov's dogs every time we get an alert or a team's notification. Um, there are things we can do to put in place to take that control. So in the book, I present what I call a menu of micro habits. So the idea is, as you said, what are the small 1% things? What are the small little adjustments, little things that we can do to take back better control of the technology? And they fall into those four pillars. So the first pillar is that we have to establish digital borders and boundaries. We have to come up with what I colloquially refer to as our digital guardrails. You know, do we have some what I also refer to as tech expectations? Where are the places and spaces where devices go? Um, when don't I use devices? Um, who do I connect with? How long? When do I switch my device off? Where does it go when I'm not using it? Um, so those boundaries are really important. That has to be done at an individual level. I'm also working with a lot of companies at the moment because I believe organisations need these guardrails. And I think if companies aren't on the front foot with this, we will soon in Australia and potentially globally already seeing it, legislation in this space around the right to disconnect. So 
boundaries are the first thing. The second thing we have to do is to start to work in alignment with how our brain and body is designed. I call these our neuroproductivity principles. So we're not designed, I hate to say it, women, men, you are right, um, we're not designed to multitask. Multitasking stresses our brain, it impairs our memory and, and hampers our performance. Um, what could we do to work better in video meetings? You know, I think we'd all agree that video meetings are here to stay, whether you love them or loathe them. How can we work in a way that will suit our brain and body? Um, working for long stretches of time. We know that the part of our brain called the prefrontal cortex only has a very short battery life. So we're designed to work in sprints, not marathons. So they're sort of the neuroproductivity techniques. The third pillar is all around digital distractions, managing our distractions, because they may seem harmless, but receiving constant notifications stresses your brain and also has a huge impact on your performance. If we are distracted, be that the ping of an email or WhatsApp notification, if you're back in the office, maybe it's chatty Cathy or talkative Tom coming up to your desk, maybe you're working remotely and it's your kids who are distracting you or your partner. However, we are distracted. Once we are distracted, it takes the average adult 23 minutes and 15 seconds to get back into a deep focus state. So our distractions are deadly to our performance. Yeah. Um, and then the final pillar is all around digital disconnection. What can we do to unplug? Because I don't know about you, Rich, but I don't have great ideas in an Excel spreadsheet or in my inbox. My great ideas and solutions to problems come in the shower, when I'm going for a swim or a run, um, when I'm off meandering. And so we have to have opportunities where we unplug. So it's those four pillars that I think we can start to do and little micro habits from each so we can better use technology and not be the slave. Yeah, I think what it really sounds like is just taking an intentional approach. But that means you've got to put the work in up front, doesn't it? You've got to actually think through what are the situations, what are the actual, what's the environment as it stands, and then make decisions on how you want to set these guardrails up, how you want to interact with different um, sides of whether it's like school communications or work communications and, and, and setting aside them into putting them into boxes almost so that you've, you've decided how and when to deal with them. And then you can actually know that the relaxed time everything's in hand it's almost like um dave allen's sort of how to get things done approach to knowing that everything yeah. is in a safe place because you've you've put it all in the place it needs to be and then your body can actually relax because it's not having to hold anything up in your head but um also when you were talking then christy i i i definitely uh, totally feel that idea of you know the the cognitive switch cost between like when you're when you're distracted and it is it's it's so I want to say just deleterious, but I don't quite know what that means. So there's a word out there that it's so costly, I guess. You know, and for me, I'm very aware of it. I have to have my noise cancelling headphones on and ideally not have things within my peripheral vision. Otherwise, I'm just off with the fairies and, and sort of, uh, oh, look, something sparkly over there. Let's look at that. That looks way more interesting than this. Um, and, and just knowing yourself is a big part of that as well, isn't it? It is. And knowing how to use the technology as well. And the problem is the technology is evolving and changing at such rapid rates. So some simple things, some simple micro habits your listeners might find helpful is bundling or batching your notifications. So if you do not want WhatsApp notifications dribbling in throughout the day, um, if you do not want Teams notifications distracting you or Slack notifications, you can now bundle or batch those notifications to come to you at a set time. Now, a lot of parents, I understand, 
have a a need to be contactable, whether you've got, you know, ageing parents, young kids, um, maybe you're working on a project at work and there's a colleague or a client that does need, you know, access to you at at a ready pace. One of the things I often say is you can create VIP notifications. So when you put on do not disturb or focus mode, everybody else gets blocked but those people on that list. So we almost have that peace of mind, as you said, knowing that the important things will still come to us, but everything else gets blocked. I believe the super skill of the 21st century, the number one thing we all need to develop as adults and that our kids and teens also have to develop, not our IQ, not our EQ, the skill of the 21st century is our FQ, our focus quotient. We have to learn how to build a fortress around our focus and turning off notifications, bundling them, putting our phone somewhere where we can't see it when we need to get focused work done or when we want to be present with our kids or our partner can have such a profound impact. But as you said, it requires some intermediary steps on our behalf and some intentions about putting in place those technologies because The tech we use has deliberately been engineered to be addictive and appealing and captivating. You know, it's no accident that your notification bubble is red. Red is associated with danger, urgency and importance. Yeah, Um, it's it's not green. It's not green, is it? (laughs) It's not baby pink. It's not sky blue. Um, So another little micro habit that your listeners might like is that when it is your focus period that you need to get some work done, turn your phone to grayscale. I'm the first to say that Instagram and TikTok are really boring in black and white. (laughs) Um, So turning, you know, using some of your settings, um, popping your phone away where you don't want to see it, maximising when you are working on a laptop or a desktop, maximising your windows. So those, you know, when you hit a stuck point on your, the, the, Word document you're working on, or you're doing some data analysis, and you hit that hit that crunchy point where you're just trying to resolve something challenging. What do many of us do now? Look to the next window. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, let me just look over there, away from the the main focus. Yeah, and again, no accident. Those the the icon colors are have been very strategically designed to be appealing. So maximizing your windows on on your computer screen when you're working so you're not sort of lured into one of those tech temptations um it is hard though i think it's really important you know i say this as somebody who researches talks about it i'm the first to say this is really onerous and i don't get it right all the time but i also think there are things that we can do and i think for many of us we've abdicated responsibility and almost bought into the, the the norm that this is just how life is now and it doesn't need to be that way because it's impacting us and that's not how we should be operating as humans yeah one of your pieces of advice which was batching the whatsapp uh, i've been doing for probably the last two weeks and it's been brilliant like so good Game changer, isn't it? yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> people are like yeah. where where, where did you get to well, i was like well yeah i just don't don't check on it uh, you know i don't have it come to me all the time because you know depending yeah. on what group you're associated with it can be firing off every three minutes oh yeah, and, and our brain can't, when, when something comes to us, be that an alert, a notification, a vibration, our, we remember I said before, we've got ancient Paleolithic brains. So we've got brains that are biologically designed and engineered to go out and get information, to forage and seek and hunt. But when information reverses and it, it comes to us, you know, alerts, pings, reminders, our brain thinks oh, potential stress or potential danger. And even though we know we don't need to check the WhatsApp message, our brain can't differentiate between a team's notification and a tiger chasing us. They're both perceived by our brain as a potential stressor or danger. And so 
triaging or managing um, when you get your notifications, bundling them makes such a big difference. If you've got kids, though, and I acknowledge some parents say, but what if I miss something really important? What if I find out that training's been moved to another location? One of the things that I've found is I've got um, a friend in, in each of the really important WhatsApp groups where there could be some time-sensitive information, and I've got a friend who will text me, wait for this, I'm not trying to get more messages, but if there is, you know, an urgent piece of information that I may not see, because I check my WhatsApp messages at 8 o'clock at night, but if there's something urgent that would come through, my friend sends me a text message and I'll then know to go in and check that. Can I tell you, in the whole time I've been doing this for over 18 months now, I think I've got two text messages from friends with really time-sensitive issues. I think we've all been duped into thinking that everything is urgent and important online, and it's not. It's like, not. It's, it's so not. You're, you're dead right. Oh, man. <laughs> so, I mean, with with kids, though, I mean, what are the... What do you see as some of the hurdles? Because I remember in our first chat, you talked about how, you know, we, we really have like these basic development needs for for helping our kids optimally develop. And sleep is a big part of that. Physical movement, executive function skills. And it feels like those are the things that are impacted most with digital devices. And and so what are some of the suggestions that you, you know, you have around policing this or I don't want to say policing, but navigating this for our kids and setting up the family household? Yeah, and I'm going to start by saying I'm not perfect at this, but I think the most important thing we can do, and it is also the most challenging, is that we have to be really good digital role models. Um, oh, it's really it. hard for us to be yelling. <laughs> well, sorry. <laughs> I can hear the collective sigh from the listeners. But, you know, we're always yeah. harping on. And one of the reasons I wrote this book is because for so long our attention as adults has been on our kids and teens and they're addicted and they can't put it down but we're not much better. Yeah. You know, we justify it under the guise of I'm working or I'm ordering the groceries or I'm ordering playdates. But a lot of our use is also recreational use or some unhealthy work habits as well. So we know the brain has mirror neurons, meaning we are biologically designed to imitate and copy. So it doesn't matter what you say to your kids. This is why I don't know if it happens for you, but my kids often imitate my husband's worst characteristics and traits, <laughs> never my own, of course. <laughs> Unfortunately, they do, um, but they're designed to copy. So we have to be really good role models, you know, putting it off, not bringing it to the, to the meal table, keeping it out of our bedrooms. The other message I have for parents is that we have to be the pilot, not the passenger of the digital plane. And to be the pilot of the plane, we have to get three Bs right. As I mentioned in our last episode, we have to fiercely protect their basic needs. We have to make sure that their tech time isn't impacting their sleep and movement and connection um, and all the important things that make up childhood and adolescence. The second thing, we have to make sure we establish boundaries um, with them, not on them. So it's it's co-establishing depending on their age. You know, obviously you're not asking an 18-month-old what they'd like their digital boundaries to be, but at an age-appropriate time, having these conversations and co-creating these, again, these family digital guardrails or agreements. And the third B is around letting our kids be bored. They have to, I believe, experience what it's like to be idle with their thoughts, to deal with frustration, big emotions, disappointment, anger, and not resort to picking up a phone or being placated by a screen. So they're the three Bs, basic needs, boundaries, and boredom. And I think our kids will be okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I was just thinking then. And, and it's so true. You know, 
they don't see what we're doing. Recently, I was very aware that I might be doing something like to do with work or whatever on a screen. And to them, I'm just on a screen. There's, it's such a hypocritical position to come from. Hey, guys, like turn the screens off now. And then you're there, whether it's something that is like you say, it's, uh, it's booking the, 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 the school meals for tomorrow or something. And I think you're right. We just have to decide on when is time for everyone to put their devices away. And we all play to the same rules because there can't be those double standards because then we're just seen as like the you know the the dictators that are spoiling their fun whereas if we can actually go right let's close everything off now let's go for a walk let's do something it makes it so much easier we're not actually sort of telling them to do something and and not sort of walking that talk yeah, I agree. And I also think with, especially with adolescents and even with upper primary school students, acknowledging to them how hard we find it too. I think there's great power in saying, you know, I get distracted by the phone. You know, I find it really hard to switch off and acknowledging that battle that we have as well makes them appreciate why we're in fact putting in place some of these boundaries. And can I say, once you start having these conversations, the worst part will be that your kids will keep you accountable. <laughs> like they're very good at reminding dad that he brought his phone to the dinner table or he forgot to put it on silent at this time. So I think it, it has some nice cascading benefits of doing that too. Yeah, you're so right, Christy. And I, I love it in the sense that when you get caught, like I'll be checking an, an email in the kitchen on my phone or something, and Ali will turn around and go, Dad, are you, are you actually listening to me? Or are you looking at your device? And I'm like, yeah, so, so guilty. Yeah. I got you. And then, but but we can actually have that conversation now. And so it's like, yes, caught red-handed. You got me. Let's sit down and like, let's really talk now. It's a useful trigger then to then actually be present. Yeah. And I don't know if I shared this last time, but in the book, I shared a story and it's a powerful story that has really stuck with me. And mum shared it with me with permission for me to, to also share. And she picked her daughter up from school. Um, did I tell you this story one day? And her daughter turned and said to her mum, how much do you earn per hour? And her mum was quite chuffed. She thought, my daughter is finally ambitious. This is fabulous. She said, look, I earn a salary. I have to do some calculations. I'll let you know. And she tucked her daughter into bed that night. She said, sweetie, I figured out how much I earn per, per hour. This is what it is. Why do you ask? And her daughter turns to her mum and says, because I'd like to buy an hour of your time without your phone. Oh, wow. <laughs> it's hard. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard. Like, it's awful saying, and we feel it. And I'm not for a moment suggesting that we should never use our phones or all devices around our kids. That's completely unhelpful advice. Of course, we need to, to use it but we, from a functional perspective. And sometimes it is our leisure time. But if that's what our kids are constantly seeing, I worry that we're missing those little micro moments of connection. You know, it's swimming lessons. After 20 weeks of paying full tuition, your child finally nails the tumble turn and they come up and their goggles are filled with water and their cap's halfway <laughs> off. They look up at you to give you the thumbs up, but you miss the moment. Like, I worry it's just those little micro moments that technology is robbing from us. And the two things that technology takes from us that we do not ever get back our time and our attention yeah and they've been engineered to do that so perfectly so again that's why i implore people there are things that we can all do to take back our control um so we're not a slave to the screen without having to do you know it's not about cancelling your netflix subscription or doing a digital detox they don't work um it's all about realistic pragmatic things that we can do um so that we're just not stuck in that constant 
digital vortex that we get trapped in. Yeah. And when you mentioned that, it reminded me of Will Howell, one of my best friends, who he was brought up in in foster care. And it's two foster parents. Whenever he walked into the house, he was like 14 or 15, they would be reading, you know, and having a cookie or whatever at night time. And as soon as he walked through the door, they'd put down the books and just look up at him as if to say, we're here. What do you want to talk about? And and it's almost like he he now recollects that as an adult going, they just gave me any attention I needed. Like they they just showed yeah, to me by putting it. the book down that it yeah. was it was all for him. Like they were there for him. And for him to remember yeah. that as a fourteen year old, imagine what we can do as parents now if as soon as our kids walk in, we put down the phone or close down the laptop and we just look at them. I think yeah. it would be a, a beautiful sort of habit to build wouldn't it it would and also again not easy to do um i'm often challenged by people so when i say you know you know are we missing the micro moments of connection you know it's swimming lessons people will often say to me but you know my parents sat and read a newspaper or read a book or um read a magazine at the park or at at swimming lessons and you know we didn't make them feel guilty I say a couple of things that are different there. One, that book and newspaper and magazine all had an endpoint. You could potentially read it and feel like you were done. When you're scrolling on your phone, you enter something called the state of insufficiency. You are never going to feel complete or done online. There's always another news article, another social media post, another um, a, a news site you can read, another refresh that we can do. And, and so we never will feel like we're done. And the other thing that I think makes these analog and digital platforms so vastly different that makes it hard for us to put the device down and look up, as you said, is the algorithm. It knows precisely what content interests us and serves it up. Now, you know, your book and magazine and newspaper had fairly curated content depending on what you purchased or read but it's nowhere near as customised and personalised as to what comes into our devices. So, yes, in theory, they could be seen as similar sort of things, reading an analogue piece of material versus a digital one, but one is so much easier to put down and look up from where the other one is yeah. our conduit to the world. Like, so oh. I just I challenge that, 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 that um, analogy that people sometimes yeah, use. No, it's, it's a good point. It's such a good point. Well, it feels like an arms race, doesn't it? It really is. And we're totally outgunned. And I've just got to say, Christy, I'm so glad that you're in our corner, actually trying to <laughs> sort of fight back some of this this push. And, you know, it, it's not all bad. We just have to make sure it's on our terms. That's it. So as long as we're yeah. we're choosing how to how to use this and being intentional and um and and to your point about you know between the prefrontal cortex and versus the amygdala like let's not let it be our amygdala use, making all the decisions yeah. let's let's use some of that executive function to make a call and set those some of those habits so that we can actually feel like yeah. we're we we we're viewing the world on our terms I think is the way to put it Yeah, and look, I share in the book, and I hope I don't spoil anything here, but I had a serendipitous meeting at a coffee shop, as you do, with a palliative care nurse. And um, she shared with me, because I I asked her, had she read, I don't know if you've read the book, Bronnie Ware's Top 5 Regrets Dying. And I said, are those trends true? Do you still see them today? And she's worked in palliative care for 30 years, which I think is just phenomenal in and of itself. And she said, yeah, I'll definitely, we see those five regrets. But she didn't know what I did for work. She didn't know this was sort of my area of expertise. But she leaned in and she said, we're seeing a new regret. 
And she said, especially with people in their 40s and 50s at the moment, she said people are saying they wish they'd spent less time online. They wish they'd spent less time in their phones. And so I don't want us to get to the end of our lives and look back and think, I wasted copious amounts of time online. I wish I could get that back. In the book, I I share the average Australian adult, it is estimated, spends 17 years of their life on their phone, just their phone. Like that is just a profound amount of time. I think we've got to take back some of that control because I, for one, certainly don't want to get to the end of my life and regret the amount of time that I spent tethered to technology. And I don't want that to be the case for other people as well. Wow, that's just mind blowing. Oh my gosh. All right. Sorry, we, we got so- No, no, no. It's brilliant. But we got to stop this interview right now. Turn off your phone, turn off everything. <laughs> no. I- and the irony is lost on me that we're doing this. But it, again, yeah. and it's not to demonize technology. You know, we wouldn't be having this conversation had it not been for technology. We wouldn't be having these rich dialogues that podcasts and social media can provide. So I th- certainly think it's about embracing these technologies. But as you said so eloquently, it's about doing so on our terms doing so in a way that serves us rather than enslaves us. And then I think we'll be making better choices. Dr. Christie, couldn't agree more. I love your work. Thanks so much for all the work you do. It's so important. Thank you. Well, thanks for listening. I hope you found that as interesting as I did. If you'd like to find out more about Dr. Christie or where you can find her book, Dear Digital, We Need to Talk, I'll put links in the show notes at thedadmindset.com. If you'd like to support the podcast, the easiest and most impactful thing you can do is to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and leave a review or just click some stars. Sharing the show or your favorite episode with friends or on social media is, of course, awesome and really helpful. For podcast updates, please subscribe to the newsletter, which you can find along with all the show notes at thedadmindset.com. Finally, if you do think that you could be burnt out, I feel for you. And one thing I can say is that you're definitely not alone. A great place to start, I found, was to talk to your GP. You never know. You might be surprised to find out that they've gone through the very same thing. Well, with that in mind, I hope you have a very connected week. And as always, enjoy your caffeinated beverage.